Here we are, November 1st, and that means Happy Author's Day to all you writers and aspiring writers. If you're thinking about writing something, anything, do it. Get focused on that project if you have one, because it's not going to write itself. Let's jump right into our sports dedication for November 1st, 2023, premiere date of episode 128 of The Far Middle. This dedication that we're going to go with also made his premiere on November 1st, and he will also make connections to your humble host, myself, Nick Deolius, of course, as it relates to one of my alma maters, Duquesne University, my hometown of Pittsburgh, and two prior far middle sports dedication subjects and honorees, those being the Celtics coach, Red Auerbach, and the Celtics guard phenom, Bob Cousy. So what individual makes a connection to all these things? Well, Chuck Cooper does. And if you're asking yourself, what's he talking about? Who is Chuck Cooper? Well, shame on you for not knowing of a very prominent person in the long history of the NBA. Cooper is the first African-American to be drafted by an NBA team. Back in 1950, on November 1st, he took the court for the Celtics after he was drafted by Red Auerbach, being one of three African-American players to first play in the NBA that season. He played alongside fellow rookie that year, Bob Cousy. Uh, Cooper was drafted out of college from Duquesne University after attending Westinghouse High School in Pittsburgh, and the forward was All-American at Duquesne, and he achieved another first prior to the NBA draft when he became the first African-American to play in a college basketball game south of the Mason-Dixon line. So that's three firsts for Cooper, if you're counting, when it came to breaking basketball's color barriers. First African-American in college to play in the South, first to be drafted by an NBA team, and one of three African-American players to first play in the NBA his rookie season. That's what you call a trailblazer, constant listeners. He was um, picked by the Boston Celtics with the first selection they had of the second round. So he was the uh, the first pick of the second round overall. And the owner of the Celts, uh, Walter Brown, His famous quote when drafting Cooper was, I don't give a damn if he's striped, plaid, or polka dot. Boston takes Charles Cooper of Duquesne. It's a classic. Cooper uh, made his NBA debut on, as I said, November 1st, back in 1950, against the Fort Wayne Pistons. He played six seasons. And another cool attribute of Cooper was that after he retired from the NBA, he spent his remaining career in Pittsburgh helping to improve the city in various posts that he served on. He died too young at age 57 in the mid-1980s, and he was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame in 2019. Pittsburgh native, Westinghouse High School grad, Navy veteran, Duquesne standout, breaking down barriers three different ways. It doesn't get much better than that, constant listeners. Episode 128 goes to Chuck Cooper. What trailblazers like Chuck Cooper were doing was creating their own freedom to achieve in their respective fields. That can be the Jackie Robinson and Chuck Cooper examples in pro sports, or it could be some type of innovative technology or product in business that wants to compete and achieve in the free market. And I just said it doesn't get any better than Chuck Cooper, but it just might get better when it comes to our connection to how a Chuck Cooper breaks out and breaks down barriers because we jump to a thought from Thomas Sowell. Now, Thomas Sowell is a recurring topical guest in connection, so to speak, on the far middle. 
Longtime constant listeners to the far middle should know him well by now. The American economist, author, and social commentator who is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution once stated, quote, freedom is not simply the right of intellectuals to circulate their merchandise. It is, above all, the right of ordinary people to find elbow room for themselves and a refuge from the rampaging presumptions of their betters, end quote. He is speaking, of course, of the power and benefit associated with capitalism and free markets and when the individual reigns supreme. Although those systems are far from perfect, massively positive things happen across an amazingly wide stakeholder group, and that includes not just professional athletes and businesses, but also hundreds of millions of everyday people. People and stakeholders that we refer to as workers and the middle class, and consumers, and small business owners, and immigrants. Yeah, free markets and capitalism, they allow avenues for the Coopers and Robinsons and Fords and Microsofts to break out, to compete, and to achieve. And also to fail, because allowing failure, that's part of the deal in such an individual-focused system of a free market or capitalism. If you think I might be overstating the importance of capitalism and the benefits of the free market and the private sector, let's make a connection to the following data. Let's start with time frame. Adam Smith publishes the epic Wealth of Nations the same year our nation declared independence in 1776. Now, since 1776, when Wealth of Nations laid out the concept of free markets and capitalism, and at the same time, the experiment that was to be known as the United States first started to take shape. If you stretch from 1776 then to today, consider what's transpired over the same time the capitalism, individual rights, and the free markets have expanded globally. Let's look at population. Population globally has increased 11-fold, from 600 million then to 8 billion today. Life expectancy, it's nearly doubled. Atmospheric carbon dioxide, that's also doubled, which correlates, by the way, to energy access and utilization, which are prerequisite to better quality of life for humans. Now, Thomas Sowell takes these global trends and data, and he drills down into the uh, more market impacts on the developing world. So check out what he says when it comes to the developing world with respect to economic freedom. Quote, when India and China historically two of the poorest countries in the world, began in the late 20th century to make fundamental changes to their economic policies. 20 million people in India rose out of destitution in a decade, and more than a million Chinese per month rose out of poverty. And then he continues, things like this are what make the study of economics important, end quote. Yes, and the study of economics along with the trial and error in the real world of different systems, those things have shown over and over that a free market capitalistic system that protects individual rights is the superior system. And it's not even close, constant listeners. But I've got some bad news, which I would like to make a connection to. Because despite the overwhelming data over centuries that prove the superiority of capitalism, the left continues to make concerning inroads across societies and economies, rolling back all that hard-earned progress in the process. Today, the popular trend is toward omnipotent government, which is a term I'm going to sprinkle throughout the remainder of this episode, almost using it as a theme, I suppose. 
in what some might call the nanny state. Uh, what I reference in my book, Precipice, the left's campaign to destroy America, is the deep state. Deep not as in secret, but deep as in the bureaucrat being embedded in everything everywhere these days, is in deeply entrenched. Yeah, today government manufactures problems and then prescribes solutions to the manufactured problems as being in the form of more government. Think about that. The bureaucrat makes things worse by reversing progress of the free market and competition and capitalism. And then the bureaucrat says the answer is to make things better, not by simply having government get out of the way, but instead to double down on more government and less individual and private sector doers. It's the classic positive feedback loop we discussed a few episodes ago on how the media and academia and environmental groups, they collude to fabricate storylines about domestic energy causing health problems of local residents. Same dynamic at work here with the left and socialism as it relates to our economy. And the price paid continues to grow by the day and by the regulation. The irony is that despite everyone sensing the bureaucrat and the government being incompetent and inferior to the private sector, the left has managed to lull us into thinking that government is omnipotent. Omnipotent government, by the way, that's the title of a classic book by another great economist, Ludwig von Mises. And we talked about that classic here and there through old episodes of The Far Middle. Give that one a read if you have the slightest interest. And let me assure you that you should have a massive interest in the topic in the book. That classic from 1944, truer today than ever. And if you think we're not living in an era of creeping omnipotent government, think again with a connection we'll make to more examples. So consider the following, at least if you dare. An epidemic leads to government telling every citizen that they must mask up, they can't travel, they've got to get a shot or two or three, they can't visit loved ones. And we all accepted it with minimal griping, which means the precedent's been set to make it easier to do the same thing again. All you need is the justification through some set of procured data. And by the way, did any of these mandates by government solve the problem and ease the pandemic? Heck no. In some instances, the mandates made things worse and resulted in unnecessary harm and even, in some instances, death. Government now tells us that seas are rising and temperatures are boiling, but they have the answer. The answer is through mandates of forcing this, this being EVs and wind and solar, and through mandates barring that, that being nukes, coal, and carbon. And the forced transition is through thousands of regulations cutting across every imaginable sector and segment of the market and society. Government has not only convinced us the weather is the problem, but amazingly, government has convinced us that it, and only it, can control the weather. Amazing. And think about banking and how much has changed. Banks are so heavily regulated these days that they're effectively state-controlled entities. Their balance sheets are dictated by bureaucrat, they can't lend to certain stakeholders without penalty, and they're instructed to subsidize loans to other favored stakeholders. The capital markets are no longer free market-based but instead they're state controlled. And consumers, they don't set demand and pricing for products anymore. The state does. No gas stoves, they have to be electric stoves. No gas cars, consumers have to buy EVs. And on and on. Omnipotent government, constant listeners, just think about it. And the danger. If capitalism 
equates and correlates to freedom, and there are nearly 250 years of history and data proving that to be true, then socialism or communism via omnipotent government logically equates to loss of freedom and all the benefits that come with it. Now, I don't mean to frighten you more, but let's make a connection to how things are getting worse when it comes to the state's ability to tighten its control even more. The rise of the administrative state, it's been well documented by many, including on this podcast. But the left, it's not stopping. It desires more control over the individual and society, and it's going to look to attain more power by bypassing the voter and elected representative bodies like Congress. Now, how's it going to do so? By granting the administrative state more unilateral power to set rules that exert control of the bureaucrat and that limit the freedom of the individual. The good news is that the Supreme Court recently has reigned in some of the Biden administration's regulatory excesses. But the bad news is that the bureaucracy shifts tactics to continue tightening control. And much of these tactics center around what's known as the circular. Now, what's the circular? It's guidance that's issued by the White House Office of Management and Budget, or the OMB. And the circular details federal agencies and lays out how they should calculate the costs of regulation. So it sort of lays out a a roadmap or a framework for how to go about that. And the idea of the guidance is to protect taxpayers by requiring the proposed regulations be justified on costs and benefits using transparent and standard criteria. It was created effectively as a check on administrative agencies that are looking to extend power by short-circuiting elections and by ignoring the cost of the regulations to taxpayers. So it's a great idea, which is why the administrative state is looking to bypass it. In April this year, the president issued an executive order that instructed OMB to modernize the regulatory process. Now, what the president meant by modernize is to remove those checks and restraints that I just spoke about. So under the president's order, a significant regulatory action is now redefined is one that's expected to have a $200 million annual economic cost, which is double the current $100 million cost threshold. And it gets worse. The president now also wants consideration of the global effects of the proposed regulation to be included in the benefit side of the ledger when tabulating cost-benefit, which means that a manufactured benefit for the globe cannot just figure into the analysis of a new regulation, but it can also be used to justify that new regulation under the cost-benefit analysis, even though the cost side to the American taxpayers and citizens could be massive. So that opens the ability to justify scores of significant regulatory actions using these manufactured and stacked cost-benefit analyses to force, I don't know, say climate policies at the expense of, say, I don't know, flyover country. There's a bunch of other tactics used to manipulate the benefit side of the cost-benefit analysis that would force new regulations upon taxpayers. Um, You see discount rates that get adjusted and timeframes, they get stretched to allow the desired math of benefits exceeding costs. And if a public corporation engaged in such chicanery, uh, regulators and the system, they'd come down hard and criminal actions might be pursued. But when government does it, No one seems to bat an eye, even though every American stands to lose. And this is nothing new in part for the course of an obvious trend when it comes to the Biden administration and the regulatory state. 
President Biden has already unleashed more regulatory costs on the economy than any president in recent history, yes, including President Obama. And we knew this was going to be the course when President Biden took office and repealed the prior rule that for every new regulation, two existing regulations had to be repealed. Let's add a little insult to the injury of omnipotent government by making a connection to how federal government bureaucrats are expected to work. I'm not sure whether you've been to Washington, D.C. It's actually a beautiful city when it comes to architecture, the best of everything, so to speak. You've got stone and granite everywhere you look, wide avenues and marble monuments laid out as far as the eye can see. L'Enfant did a masterful job when he designed D.C., a.k.a. the Swamp. But there's a problem of late with that glittering city on the Potomac. There are almost 300,000 federal bureaucratic employees in Washington, and most of them don't even have to show up to work today. Those awesome buildings, they're largely empty, still, despite the COVID crisis being long, long gone. Now, there was a post-pandemic report by the Government Accountability Office, the GAO. And by the way, is government accountability an oxymoron these days? I'm not sure. Anyway, the GAO report from this summer said that of the 17 federal headquarter buildings that were surveyed, the occupancy rate was at 25% or less of capacity. 25% or less. I ran down how many square feet of office space the 17 federal headquarter buildings represent, and the number is a staggering 21.5 million square feet of office space. And as you might expect, all that space is not cheap for taxpayers. The GAO says federal agencies spend about $2 billion annually to operate federal offices, and that spend doesn't care largely if the offices are at 100% capacity or less than 25% of capacity with workers. Now, this is embarrassing for the government and head of the executive branch who leads all those absent workers. We call him the president. And President Biden had his chief of staff issue a memo late this summer to all the cabinet secretaries, imploring them to get their teams to show up at the office and to work. The memo said a return to in-person attendance for work was, quote, a priority of the president. End quote. I don't know whether to laugh, cry, or cringe at that. Accountable government, working for the people, looking after taxpayers' interests, please. When omnipotent government rips the reins of the economy and markets from the private sector and individuals competing in a meritocracy, you're going to start to see symptoms everywhere. You'll see them in industries, with money flows, and with leadership. Let's connect to a specific example. There's a national newspaper out there with a stellar business reputation, and recently they did a feature story on the CEO of a solar company. Now, solar is one of those industries that's been a massive beneficiary of omnipotent government, right? Markets are created and protected for solar under the heavy hand of government, and money flows to solar, often out of the pockets of taxpayers. It's not surprising that solar companies pop up everywhere, even though in a competitive free market, they get demolished right out of the gate. The uncompetitive becomes competitive when it's favored by omnipotent government, whether it be under cover of saving the planet from climate change in the energy industry or some other cover or justification with some other industry. The feature story was intriguing on this point. 
The CEO grew up in an art-focused family, so not from an engineering or business family background. And the CEO worked in government and admitted that it gave insight into how policy drives decisions and opportunity. Isn't that the truth? What the CEO failed to mention is how every opportunity created by policy of omnipotent government comes twinned or paired with a stolen opportunity of the superior entity in a free market. You take opportunity from the competitive to give it to the supported or favored less competitive option. Solar wins at, say, natural gas's expense, and omnipotent government puts its thumb on the scales. The story talked about the solar company and quoted its rise in sales and market share that it enjoyed. And the story made direct mention of tax credits from the IRA climate bill as driving those sales and market share increases, which infers that if no tax credits, no sales and no market, no company, frankly. Now, in rich irony, consistent with far middle themes, the CEO at the very end of the article states, quote, more people want more control over how they power their homes, end quote. The lie there is that mandating solar and subsidizing it on your roof, that it gives you more control over your energy and power use. But the truth is that just the opposite occurs, and the control will now sit with, you guessed it, omnipotent government. Let's make a connection on how the symptoms of omnipotent government bleed into professions and compensation for professions. Today in places like New York City and on Wall Street, lawyers are making a killing and making more money than bankers. Now that is the definition of going from bad to worse for the doers and value creators out there. And I'm a lawyer and I've spent serious time in my career in the finance arena, so I'm not hating on either profession, but they are service professions to value creators in the best of circumstances. When bankers and lawyers become the drivers, bad things happen to value creators and economies. Equity partners at major law firms, they're pulling in $3 million a year on average. That's triple what they made 20 years ago. Partners can make $15 million a year or more at the most prestigious firms in New York and in D.C. Many professionals are jumping from investment banking into law firms to chase the big bucks. So why are lawyers so prevalent? Because as regulations and complexity pile up from omnipotent government, you need lawyers if you want to run a business or get anything built or done. The administrative state feeds the lawyer complex and sets unprecedented demand for legal services. It's not a free market rate for attorneys any more than it's a free market rate for solar power. It's a rate more akin to extortion or monopoly power. Effectively, you need to pay protection money to get things done and stay out of trouble in the web of the regulatory state. So who pays for all this? Companies, businesses, consumers. In other words, you do. I do. The rate increases for lawyers at big-time firms, it far outpaces inflation every year. Top lawyers are now charging over $2,000 an hour. Still wondering why we are experiencing runaway inflation? Root cause? Omnipotent government and its policies. Let's do a connection to even higher level symptoms of omnipotent government beyond companies and CEOs and professions. Let's look at the money flows across global corporations under the vaunted energy transition brought to us by the administrative state. 
The truth of the matter is that foreign corporations are enjoying the most subsidy and incentives from U.S. climate policy. When you assess the data, it's shocking and it's not even close. A recent analysis I came across listed the top 10 EV and battery plants that have been announced since the IRA climate incentives. Now, those commitments, they correlate to taxpayer subsidy. That's why they are, using air quotes here, investing. Another perhaps more appropriate term from investing would instead be taking. But back to the top 10 list of investing or taking, whichever you want to call it, announcements for EVs and battery plants. Um, There are Korean firms, LG Electronics and Hyundai, um, Japanese firms, Panasonic and Honda that were in the top five. You don't see an American firm until number six, which was Tesla, a company based entirely off of protected market and taxpayer subsidy. The analysis indicated that 15 of the top 20 EV and battery projects involve foreign corporations or businesses. Panasonic It was bold enough to admit it expects to reap $2 billion a year from U.S. tax credits flowing from just two of its U.S. projects. $2 billion every year as a taxpayer, OMG. Think about the billions of dollars by regulatory design that are taken from the taxpayer and placed into the coffers of foreign conglomerate corporations. This is saving the planet, or instead is this something else altogether? Let's keep elevating to higher and higher level views of the symptoms and derivative results of omnipotent government. Let's connect to geopolitics. Remember this summer when Putin or somebody took out the leader of the Wagner mercenary group after the leader started a military coup and then halfway to Moscow said, "Eh, just kidding. Well, there's a bigger story there, one enabled by omnipotent government in the West. Allow me to explain. Wagner Group is a proxy, of course, for Putin. It will go to places and do things in those places that the Russian government can't directly do, but that the Russian government wants to have done. And one such place is Mali in Africa. There's a bit of a civil war going on in the central and northern parts of Mali between the government and jihadists. And Wagner is allied with government forces in committing atrocities along the way to exert control. Now, why is Wagner and thus Russia so interested in faraway Mali? Well, Mali has considerable natural resources with gold and uranium and manganese and phosphates and lithium being the most widely exploited. Mali holds a lot of stuff needed for the forced energy transition brought to you by omnipotent government. You need Mali's materials to make EVs and wind turbines and solar panels. So Wagner doesn't just send armed soldiers to Mali. Ahead of the guns and soldiers first came geologists to verify the resources that the nation held. Then once valuable resources were verified by Wagner geologists, it sent the paramilitary soldiers and the affiliated intimidation that came with them. Wagner helps the Mali government brutally put down the uprising, and then Russia reaps the resource and economic benefit. What incentivizes this series of events and behaviors, it's not the Mali government, not really. That's a small-time player. And it's not the Wagner Group. Nope, brutal murder for hire racket. Uh, That's all that Wagner is. Putin and Russia, not really. They're just reacting to the root cause. The creator of the pain and mess in Mali is none other than omnipotent government in the EU and US and Canada. 
all of which via regulation and policy crush the free market and the superior, and they force the state-controlled economy in the inferior. Since Mali holds resources needed for the inferior and state-controlled economy, it becomes a pawn where its people end up paying a huge price. And that's been the story of Africa for centuries, hasn't it? I suppose omnipotent government is just a new version, more brutal chapter of colonialism under the pleasant camouflage of green energy. Did you enjoy the run of connections this week? All tie into that central theme of omnipotent government. Yes, read von Mises' classic by the same name. You'll be pleased that you did. And let's close with a shout-out birthday wish for tomorrow, November 2nd, to a person who, in many ways, one could argue represented omnipotent government and then ended up paying a heavy price for it when the arrogance got the best of her. Happy birthday to that oft-quoted Archduchess of Austria. Who? The last Queen of France before the French Revolution. Still need help? Okay, the person who allegedly said, let them eat cake. That's right, birthday wishes to Marie Antoinette, who was born on tomorrow's date, November 2nd, back in 1755. And actually, she likely never said, let them eat cake. It was probably made up by Rousseau, who was a militant supporter of the French Revolution and wanted to paint Antoinette in ill light. I guess history was always written by the victors and fake news is nothing new. And if you recall, which if you do recall, I'm shocked and sort of impressed and maybe a little scared. Way back in episode 81 of The Far Middle, I spoke about my visit to Marietta College in Marietta, Ohio. Guess who the town of Marietta was named after? That's right, Marie Antoinette. Pretty cool to be able to wrap with a Far Middle inter-episode connection. Have a wonderful week, everybody.